Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Back again to answer questions about Buddhism and meditation practice with, of course, special emphasis on meditation and mindfulness practice. But if you have questions about your life or your practice of the Buddhist teaching and need an answer, Please feel free to post your question in the chat at any time. For the first 15 minutes, as usual, we will conduct a silent group meditation, give everyone an opportunity to settle in, to prepare yourself mentally and open yourself up to, to your experience. Open yourself up to the Dhamma and 15 minutes to ask questions for people just coming in. And after 15 minutes, we will start to answer the questions.
All right, we're back. So we will begin to answer questions now. Kubante, we do have questions. If I do a two-month-long self-led retreat with your noting practice, is it possible that I can attain stream entry? So only a Buddha can know what is possible and what is not possible with any certainty. I'm not in a position to answer the question uh, of whether someone I don't know is able to do something or, or something else. But I, I, I guess your question is a little more general. Is such a thing possible? Uh, the Buddha said that if one practices mindfulness for seven days, it's possible for them to become an anagami, if not an arahant. But you have to understand that the question of whether you can do that is highly dependent on your own circumstances. Uh, one of those circumstances is whether you have a teacher. So you qualifying it by saying you're going to do a self-led retreat does um, quite likely reduce your chances of getting good results. All other things being equal. Now I don't again I don't know who you are I don't know anything about you so uh, it's quite possible that you are such a person who doesn't need a teacher such beings are very very rare and it's much more common for people to think they don't need a teacher when in fact they do that is quite common so I would recommend that most likely you should have a teacher and do courses with the guidance. It's not even so much about being a newcomer to the practice or, or a newcomer to meditation. You find it beneficial even if after you've practiced for a long time. Another thing I would, I guess, comment on is the focus on stream entry can often be a hindrance as focus on any goal can be a hindrance so not that you you were asking this but just keep in mind that if you're uh, obsessing about the goal or a goal uh, it can make it harder to actually gain progress because you should be focused on the present moment For a beginner in Satipatthana Vipassana meditation method and Theravada Buddhism, where does one start to learn the Dhamma and not feel overwhelmed with the vast knowledge? Well, if you feel overwhelmed, you can always note overwhelmed, overwhelmed. I suppose that's not what you're asking. It is just still, still a good, solid advice, I think to uh, note that any feeling of or any problem you might have with studying sometimes boredom is an issue but feeling overwhelmed certainly can be but you should, should just note these things confused if you're confused uh, so I, I would say i guess the begin the start is of course to practice which i guess you're probably doing but if not then of course, the, the, the best way to learn Buddhism is uh, through the practice with guidance by a teacher who can answer your questions and sort of tailor, tailor your theoretical learning to the actual practice that you're doing and limit it to that so that you're not overwhelmed. Uh, after you've started to do more practice, then of course you can branch out and read some of the texts. And I would just recommend reading the actual teachings of the Buddha the Majima Nikaya, the Diga Nikaya, these are two good places to start. And there's reasonable English translations out there.
How do you let sound just be sound and not react to it? Well, you only do that if you have mindfulness and therefore wisdom. So you can't control that. You can't just force yourself not to react. It's not the way the mind works. The way the mind ceases to react um, is through the power of mindfulness and the power of wisdom, which have to be cultivated. So we cultivate it by reminding ourselves that it's just sound. That's what sort of what the definition of sati is. By saying to ourselves, hearing, hearing. You can also, of course, note the disliking or liking or any reaction you might have to it. I don't know if you've read our booklet. I would recommend starting there. I don't know if you've done our at-home course. You could continue with that. And we also have intensive courses at our center. I feel the expense. Sorry, if I can just, uh, mm. for the previous question, the one about uh, Theravada Buddhism, if you're interested, you could start with our booklet. That might be a good place for you to start. Okay, go ahead. I feel the expansion and contraction of my breath, not only in the belly, but in the whole body, like a cylinder in a strong way. Should I focus my attention on the whole body or only on the belly? Whatever you feel is not um, what we're focusing on. That's just conceptual. It's some kind of, um, maybe not conceptual, but it's uh, some kind of abstract sense. Uh, you can note it as feeling, feeling. Um, but the, unless, well, it's not possible that your whole body is expanding and contracting. This is, we're talking about muscles in the stomach and they don't exist in your whole body. That, that specific muscle uh, tenses and relaxes. And that's what we're focusing on. If you don't feel that, you can put your hand on your stomach and focus on that. That's what we're focused on. It would be problematic if you were to continue with what you're doing. Not dangerous, likely, but it's just there is no muscle that does that. I mean, this expanding and contracting is much more likely conceptual or, or some kind of formed... State. Like there are people who can feel, or there are practices whereby you can feel your heartbeat, for example, in your whole body, but that's just a, something you've created. Or not exactly created, but formed. You formed the, the observation of it, the awareness of it. Um, and that's not what we're doing here. We're trying to be aware of what's actually uh, there without us, without our control, without our formation. It just happens by itself. You can put your hand on your stomach if you want to feel this. Whatever else you're feeling, this, this, whatever you're it is that you're describing, you just note that separately as feeling, feeling, and let it go. I am forgetful and seem to not know how to pick up on common sense ideas. Can mindfulness help? Mindfulness has a lot of side benefits, physically and mentally. Um, I, I wouldn't, I would caution against taking them as your focus and being concerned with them. Uh, you're much better off, and it's much more in line with mindfulness to change your perspective on being forgetful and your lack of common sense and that sort of thing. Try and note the, the frustration you might have with it or anything like that because that would be being mindful. And whatever benefits come, uh, you have to really just learn to let go of them, because any kind of obsession or desire you might have for them, or even liking of the fact that, you, that they're coming, is, is no longer being mindful, and so it's problematic. You can never really focus your attention on such things. If I don't have the possibility to go on a retreat, how long do you recommend meditating daily at home? It's hard. It, 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 is, it does have to be tailored to you, and everyone's going to be different. But the, the general sort of recommendation is at least an hour a day. 
most people can manage that if with some for some people it's a bit of a challenge for many people it's a challenge at first but um that's a good sort of basic start if you want to be really serious probably two hours is more reasonable but that but that's hard for a lot of people so consider that that's starting to get a little bit serious if you're really dedicated to it and maybe after you've done a couple of courses then you can kind of push yourself to do at least two hours a day of course if you have more time doing more is is even better And that's uh, half walking and half sitting, so it's not so bad as it might sound for newcomers. So we do 15 minutes walking, 15 minutes sitting in the morning, and the same in the evening, and you've sort of, I would say you've done a good, great thing. You've gotten a good basic foundation in meditation practice. And of course, the other thing is to be mindful outside of practice, applying the technique in your daily life. It's a big part of the practice. Is there such a thing as too much meditation? I mean, it's a bit of an odd question. I guess that it's coming from a place of asking whether meditation could be dangerous. Uh, and meditation could be dangerous not because of anything to do with the word meditation, but because of the things that you do when you label what you're doing as meditating. Right. So what are you actually doing when you say that you're meditating? Because it's just a word. Meditation. I'm practicing meditation. doesn't tell me a lot about what you're actually doing. It tells me you're probably um, focused inwardly, probably, but not always. You're probably yeah, very focused or, or more focused than normal, but not necessarily. Uh, it doesn't tell me a lot else. So if we were to narrow this down and talk about Buddhist meditation, which I think we should, then we can say that there are two types of meditation. One is samatha and one is vipassana. Can there be too much of samatha or too much vipassana? I don't think so. No, there cannot be. The problem is when then when people are not practicing correctly, meditation can be dangerous. Not because meditation is dangerous, because what you're doing, practicing wrongly, uh, like for example, um, focusing on what you want to happen rather than what is happening, getting caught up in something and trying to make more of it rather than just see it for what it is. Um, can be dangerous. Samatha meditation has that potential because it's conceptual, that if you're not well guided either by yourself or by something else, there is much more potential for getting lost in and, and cultivating wrong practice. With mindfulness, it's less likely. still possible if you're, especially if you are uh, have mental instability and are are unguided or wrongly guided i've seen cases where someone was guided wrongly and ended up having a well, i guess what they call a psychotic break but it was just because they stopped practicing correctly they started um, using mantras that had nothing to do with what they were actually experiencing it was more like rest, reciting words like wisdom wisdom or something like that nothing to do with what they were actually experiencing so it was kind of totally unrelated to mindfulness practice but that hasn't that's not answering the question of whether too much meditation too much samatha too much vipassana is not really a thing it's not really possible there's no there's no upper limit the upper limit i guess is nibbana or the jhanas if you're just practicing uh, samatha then there is the upper limit is just neva sanya na sanya yatana or neva sanya na sanya uh, what do you call neva sanya na sanya jhana i don't know what, what do you call that anyway then neither perception nor non-perception walking 
brings wakefulness and sitting sometimes sleepiness. Is it okay to do one hour of walking in the morning and one hour sitting in the evening instead of dividing 30 by 30? Hmm. No, not, no, no, not. Um, it's kind of, um, it's an issue that you'll have to deal with, but it's beneficial for you to deal with it. To some extent, doing daily practice will change the way your brain works and will help you to have a better sort of wakefulness, a uh, better sort of focused wakefulness. Um, but you do have to face the challenge. And walking and sitting are really important, done, done in, in conjunction. If you're walking a lot during the day, then you might consider doing less walking meditation. But it doesn't really have anything to do with sleepiness and wakefulness. They're really good in, in combination, and I would still definitely recommend trying your best to do both. If you're sleepy, that's just something you have to learn to deal with and change about yourself. To some extent, to some extent, you'd be surprised to what extent you can, you can change that about yourself. It's not just a unavoidable quality of of life. Is the purpose of labeling the object of meditation to produce calmness, samatha, or does it have another purpose? Well, samatha doesn't mean calmness, it means tranquility. The purpose of labeling the object is to remind yourself of the object. That's, that's sort of an awkward way of saying it in English, but that's what the word means in Pali, and that's why the word sati is used, because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to remember the object. You're trying to not forget not get lost in conceptualizing, about extrapolating or reacting to the object. You're trying to just remember seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing. A part of that is going to involve samatha. There's going to be a samatha aspect, but there's also a panya aspect, a wisdom aspect. There's also energy involved, um, confidence. All of the five faculties are involved. Because that um, that recognition and that remembrance of the object, just as it is, uh, puts you in a good position to understand the object and to see the nature of the objects of experience and the nature of experience in general as being impermanent, suffering, and non-self. And so, the purpose, real purpose, is enlightenment the, through the clarity that comes as a result of it. What do you suggest when I note wanting that arises and then after noting, it keeps coming back and I note again? Is there anything else to do or just keep noting the repeated wanting? So there's nothing else to do. That's fine. What you're doing is great, but you, you have to understand why it's enough is that it's not just going to be an eternal, uh, an unending um, cycle where it comes back, you note it, it comes back, you note it, your, your mind is going to start to get tired of it because wanting has um, some fairly charged causes uh, or, or it's a habit that is, is um, energetic and excited. And so by seeing it come back incessantly and by seeing the objects that you want come back incessantly and by seeing how the result what the result is and how there is no satisfaction in it uh, you you start to get tired of it and the excitement wanes and you become disenchanted with the objects that you used to be enchanted with so the wanting uh, decreases and eventually goes away that's the way you overcome um, addiction, aversion, it's not by forcing yourself to not want or to not hate or that sort of thing. It's by getting tired of it, getting disenchanted, losing 
your intoxication with it as you see how incessant and unmanageable and pointless and meaningless it is, how it's not actually worth clinging the way you thought it was. I struggle being mindful outside formal meditation. I try to do as much as I can in formal meditation, but then it seems I am too tired to be mindful outside of formal practice. Any tips? Well, mindfulness will um, require energy, but it can also be tiresome when you're not very good at it. So it's kind of like wielding a cudgel, like a, a blunt instrument. You're not, it's not very uh, precise because you're not very, your mind is not very strong and you're not very accomplished in it. So you practice right, practice wrong, and there's lots of hindrances involved. So it can be overly tiresome. So it really is just practice, practice. Um, the struggle, anytime you, you describe something as being a struggle, it's a sign of growth. It's a sign of development. The challenge of learning how to, um, well, how to not struggle, learning how to uh, be proficient, how to be accomplished, how to be strong in your mind. It's a process. You're struggling because most likely you're a beginner. Um, and and beginners use loosely where you, know, you can call anyone a beginner who isn't yet uh, enlightened or isn't yet and well isn't yet enlightened. So consider yourself a beginner and consider that the struggle is going to be a part of it, <clears throat> and to some extent more important than not struggling is uh, being conscious of the reactions to struggling, the disliking of it, the frustration, the wanting for something pleasant, or that sort of thing. What causes the mind to become convinced of at least one of the three characteristics? Um, seeing them, you could say seeing them, but I guess more accurately having a strong enough mind to, well, no, that's not even fair because it's still seeing them, but you see them because you have a strong mind, you gain a strong mind also because of seeing the three characteristics. It's a feedback loop. You see the three characteristics, your mind becomes more focused because it's less and distracted by things that are impermanent suffering and non-self, it becomes less intoxicated, less clingy as a result, so it's able to see better, and so it sees the three characteristics even clearer, until there comes a point where you're just convinced of it. You just see it so clearly that it just leads to letting go. You just accept or understand that reality is experiences impermanent suffering and non-self, and then you let go. Do you teach a supa meditation? Is it okay to combine it with the Satipatthana meditation you teach? Well, you wouldn't combine it, but you can do it in conjunction, which I guess is what you're saying. Uh, meaning from time to time you can practice asubha meditation. You're, that's allowed because it's one of the four protective meditations. It's a support for practice. Just don't get obsessed with it and, or, or distracted by it. But from time to time, practicing it is, is a generally beneficial thing. It would be beneficial for someone who has uh, lustful tendencies. If I recall correctly, you mentioned that the earth is not real. Why does one need to be mindful of taking care of the environment? Um, I mean, first of all, the earth not being real doesn't really have any bearing on anything. Um, it, it It's a conceptual thing, but it doesn't 
it doesn't mean that it's a, an illusion. It just means that it only exists conceptually. But it exists conceptually based on actual experience, so it's not it's not uh, illusion. It just is made up of experiences. But um, you don't have to be mindful of taking care of the environment. I consider it to be a good sign if people are taking care of the environment. It's a sign that they're um, mindful, they're conscientious, um, they're wise. But uh, obsession with it is probably a sign of the opposite. People And people who get angry or sad when they think of the environment is is not a good sign. It's a bit of a distraction, but it's a good sign when people take care of the environment because it's a sign that they're not greedy, it's a sign that they're conscientious of other people, a sign that they have, um, they're, they're thoughtful and considerate, and it's a sign of, of fewness of, of wishes. Taking care of the environment isn't, I mean, it isn't actually a thing we need to do if we don't have a lot of greed. The reason why the environment is going to trash is because of our greed and excessive greed as a human race. We, we would very easily be able to take care of the environment if we did not have so much greed, if we had just a little bit of greed, but it keeps growing and growing and our incessant and intense greed is forcing us to destroy our own happiness and our own pleasure you might say so not not that it's the end of the world it, it it just it leads to sickness it leads to unhappiness depression leads to stress as the environment becomes less easy to live in and so it's exacerbated it gets worse and worse it's kind of a loop whereas the environment gets worse we crave more and more for pleasures that are harder and harder to get. And we become more and more averse to the unpleasant sensations that we experience as a result. So I don't think you have to focus on protecting the environment. I think on top of that, it's reasonable, um, knowing that there is such greed that is destroying the environment, it's reasonable to take some uh, steps in um, environmental protectionism again just out of consideration out of thoughtfulness out of kindness because there are people whose lives are very much affected by the environmental changes like climate change and so on i have been dealing with anger issues for the past few months leading to bouts of sadness i haven't snapped at anyone yet and my job deals with bad customers. How can I manage my emotions better? Well, there's no quick fix, but uh, it's certain. I mean, there are a couple of things you can do, you, kind of like as a bandage, a band aid solution. You can cultivate metta, wishing good thoughts to other beings, people who you are, do get angry at, uh, the bad customers. A customer can't be bad, they can just be a source of triggering you to be bad, to have anger. So if they have bad emotions, that's really nothing to do with you. They have bad intentions or whatever, it's nothing to do with you. What's bad, the only thing you have to be concerned with as bad is your anger and, and your sadness, because anger, sadness is anger. It's the same mind state in a different sort of uh, texture. It's, it's not, it doesn't feel the same, but it is based on the same disliking. So, yeah, that's the first thing is you can, anytime you have anger towards a specific individual, you can try to remind yourself by wishing them well, may they be happy, they may, be, may they be free from suffering. But the long-term solution is going to be to learn about your anger and your sadness and your, your pain, the, the unpleasantness of it through the practice of mindfulness. Don't expect it to have immediate um, 
Well, it should it should have immediate results, but don't expect for it to to turn off your problem in a snap. It just is going to give you a better perspective that will allow you at first to um, allow the anger to come and go without you snapping. It, it makes it much easier because you're much more present. But over the long term as well, um, and, and it's not long term really, but over time you should see gradually, step by step, a reduction in anger, just an actual reduction. There's other, I mean, other things that mindfulness does also fairly immediately is change your perspective and your view, which can significantly reduce your anger, the, the anger that arises uh, quite quickly on a meaningful level. But some of it's just going to be residual and take a long time because these are very deep-seated habits. You can't just turn them off. I don't know if you've done our at-home course, but that's probably a good place to start or do an intensive meditation course after that. I have been working with an abusive father. He is not necessarily evil, but he is a difficult person to deal with. For some reason, I feel like I am giving up if I leave him. Should I leave him? Well, difficulty is not a reason not to do something. And your parents are a good place for you to begin work. I mean, they're, they're going to be one of the hardest things you do, but also the most, most rewarding. And you'd be surprised the sorts of changes that can uh, be affected. Your parents have done something that no one else can do and something you can never do for them. They have given birth to you. They have uh, generally done various things like feed you and clothe you and help you get teaching. And they can be awful. They can do awful things as well. But as always in Buddhism, we we try to ignore the bad things people have done to us, try not to dwell on those, try to focus only on the good. It's not positivity per se, but it's a recognition that uh, the, the bad things are only going to lead to unwholesomeness in my mind. And if I focus on the good things, my mind will better be able to focus on wholesome and also better able to to encourage the growth of those things think of the bad things as weeds that you just pull out and try to cultivate the growth of the, the good things so mindfulness will really help uh, and and really you should understand that what's actually difficult is your own ability to not react to things it's it's on you it's on us to not react and when we react it's not the other person is not the problem their abuse is not the problem the problem is our reaction to the abuse so it's not to say that you should actually stay um, in some cases distance is the better option at least temporarily usually temporarily Eventually, you shouldn't really have to put distance. But, you know, even an enlightened being will be better off to put distance between themselves and people who are abusive if the person persists, or at least in the very beginning, in the beginning until they stop. But as long as they're abusive, it's not in anyone's best interest for them to continue being abusive. So difficult isn't an issue, but... If the abuse doesn't stop and doesn't get better as a result of you being together with the person, then distance often can be just what is needed to create a change and to create an appreciation of the uncertainty. When you change things uh, about a per in a person's life, it can often cause them to have to grow. So it's not always wrong to leave, but to burn bridges is probably wrong, especially with someone like your father. I would probably caution most people not to burn bridges. Most people, most situations. Mindfulness has to do with remembering. Does it mean some people with neurological conditions like severe amnesia are doomed and can't follow this path? No, it means remembering the present moment. It has nothing to do with the past or the future. Remembering is uh, used in a different sense. It means to 
it's the same idea. Your ability to remember something in the past is your ability to focus on it, your ability to experience it. Um, so the same idea is, is applied to the present, where you actually experience the experience rather than reacting to it or getting lost in your reactions to it. That's what it means by remembering. And the re part, even though it's not, Pali doesn't have a re part to the word, but um, why we use that word in English, the re, um, it involves the going back to it again. So uh, the idea here is that, of course, you, you, you already experienced it, but you don't stay with it. When you see something, normally the next step is to react to it, to judge it, to extrapolate on it. And you change that by re-experiencing it. You do that by reminding yourself of it. Hey, this is, uh, I'm experiencing this now. And that, that actually brings the mind back to it and keeps the mind better focused and better present with the experience. Is it helpful to bring up emotionally charged memories in meditation? The heaviness in my heart just seems to never go away. I feel like I need to go through some kind of catharsis. No, it's not helpful. Um, going through the uh, emotionally charged memories is helpful, but the bringing them up is an unhelpful habit. You'll be creating a new habit of triggering um, unwholesomeness. So it's important that you come to terms with it, but it's wrong in all cases to try to come to try to force the coming to terms with it. Catharsis is not helpful. It's habit forming. You're just encouraging it to you're triggering it. And anything you do, it, there's greed involved, but there's also just the uh, uh, the the intentional triggering of unwholesomeness it, it's you're adding something in and we're, that's what we're trying to avoid with mindfulness another thing i will say is you have to be able to separate the heaviness in in your heart which actually isn't heaviness it will be some kind of feeling of tension or 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 something like that um the the heaviness or the tension well let's put it this way there's two parts to it there's the tension in the heart and then there's the the sadness or it can be anger, but it sounds like you're probably talking. Heaviness is usually associated with sadness. What sadness is, is it's disliking, as I said. So you should note sad or disliking. The feeling like you need this or that um, is just a, a disliking of the actual experience, a desire, a wanting. And you should just note that because that is also something you have to let go. If you incur indulge in it, again, this is... Um, encouraging the greed, it's encouraging further bad habits. It's a, it's a, it's a reasonable thought or inclination, but yeah, it's wrong. It's the kind of thing that I think therapy often gets wrong, where they try to encourage and dredge up past experiences. That's not the way it works. Um, what you will see, and remarkably, is that everything that you are holding on to does eventually come up in your practice without your um, triggering it or forcing it or, or instigating it. And then then you will see how, how much better that is because it's natural. You're not uh, indulging in greed or desire for change or aversion or that sort of thing. And so the, the result is a much more natural, mindful, and clear state of mind. If focused mental work mostly excludes mindfulness, is done without defilements, and is wholesome, right livelihood, is it still considered a hindrance to enlightenment? I have heard that an arahant couldn't work. Well, if anything's done without light, without defilements, you're likely to be enlightened. Um, delusion is generally always present if you're not mindful. So just because you don't have greed or anger doesn't mean you don't have delusion. 
and ignorance. Uh, is the work a hindrance? Not necessarily. I mean, if it's done without mindfulness, it likely is. And you'll see that reflected in your meditation. as you, If you practice meditation, you'll start to see more clearly how much of a hindrance it is. If it's done with mindfulness, it can actually be no hindrance whatsoever. It can actually facilitate your practice as a result of the capacity to be mindful. But, yeah, you're likely to see some, some effect, and you'll, you'll start to be more cognizant of the defilements, greed. I mean, there's, there's greed and, and anger in so much of what we do that we don't even notice sometimes. Um, so you, there can be greed for, for success in, in your work. There can be aversion for being thwarted or, or failure or that sort of thing. And, and they're so quick that you often don't notice them, and you don't notice them until they build up. Then you start to see how dangerous they can be. Is it normal for compassion meditation to make one sad at first? Um, I, I guess. I mean, I, I don't like to answer questions about what is normal. They're, 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 it's such a common thing to ask whether something's normal, but you have to understand how it's meaningless because you're not normal. You are you, and everybody is we have the same building blocks for what make us who we are, but we're worlds apart from each other. So there is no normal. And what is normal is, it's kind of like statistics. And the real problem with statistics is that they are useless. They are useful. No, they're not useless, but they can be useless because they, they describe no one, right? If you, were to, if you were to ask your question and say, statistically speaking, is it normal? for something to happen. And if you look at the statistics, those statistics, the, the answer to the statistics applies to no one because it, it, it's a, you take an average or you, you take a, a number, a, a conglomerate of all sorts of people. So for someone, compassion, meditation make, might make one sad. For another person, it might not. But that being said, for this one in particular, it um, it is reasonable and therefore common for compassion meditation to make one sad because there is a relationship. They are dealing with the same topics. The same thing that might make one person compassionate might make another person sad. That's because the, the focus is on the suffering of others. And the suffering of others can make you sad. The suffering of others can bring you compassion. That's the sort of thing that will... Two are the sort of things that might come from uh, focusing on the suffering of others. So um, it's wrong. It's not a part of compassion meditation because, again, sadness is based on aversion, which is an unwholesome state of mind. So it's called the sadness is called the near enemy of compassion for that reason. There's the far enemy, which is cruelty, and there's the near enemy, which is uh, sadness. So if you're sad, it's a sign that you're not being compassionate, you've failed. Uh, but you know, the great thing about failure, or the, the great thing, the great thing about failure, the encouraging thing in regards to failure is that failure is temporary and you can also always try again and, and learn to succeed. Just don't keep engaging in the the failing. Don't make it don't fail more and more. Try and fail less and less. So you'll work on it. And mindfulness, of course, will help to note sad, sad, so you can let go of it. Thank you, Bhante. You've answered every question that we have prepared today. We've All right. reached the top of the hour. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thank you, Chris, Edit, Jim, for your help. Have a good week, everyone. Sadhu. Sadhu.